Welcome to the Catch the Fire London podcast. We hope and pray you'll encounter God as you listen to this message. This afternoon. But let's pray for Dan. Father, we uh, thank you for Dan. We thank you for uh, your servant. Uh, And I just pray that um, you will release what you want to do this morning through Dan. In Jesus' name, speak through him, Father. In Jesus' name, just release your anointing upon him right now. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen, amen, thank you, thank you. Come on, well, good morning everybody. Good to see you all. Um, We're just trying out, it's an old mic but a new mic if that makes sense. If it sounds a little bit weird today, it's to do with, if you really want to know, it's to do with Wi-Fi and stuff like that. But if you don't care, then just, you know, enjoy. Um, Which is cool, but anyway. um, we're, we're talking, so on, we're on our I Believe series at the moment, and I really encourage you guys to keep on going back onto the TBN UK website, On Demand Service, you'll search I Believe, you'll find Close TV program there, and we're working our way through the episode titles of that at the moment, so the idea is that in the week you should be watching the episodes that go along with the titles on the Sundays, and on the Sundays you'll get an additional perspective slash um, kind of revelation to go alongside that, which means together, plus in your small group communities you should be getting a really really good kind of an impactful journey in this season into what we believe as Catch the Fire London and so I'd encourage you guys watch close encounter message on that because today we're talking about encounter now if you've been in Catch the Fire long enough you will know I'm trying to see if it's actually anywhere it's not it's not even on that one Um, on our big banner outside by the park you'll see there's a big banner and it says encountering God's transforming presence um, and catch the fire globally. That is our strapline as who we are, encountering God's transforming presence. Now, we went through, oh gosh, I think it was about five years ago now, we went through a global rebrand as Catch the Fire, and that was like the strapline that came from it. And as part of the branding process, and we just really like kind of really pulled apart, who are we as Catch the Fire? You know, if you want to know a bit of the history and you're not, you're not aware of it, in 1994, a church called Toronto Airport Christian Fellowship um, had a move of God that led to nightly meetings, and over the, from then until basically, I think it was like 2006, they stopped the nightly meetings due to bird flu um, kicking off, which was interesting in itself. But over that course of time, they had well over 6 million people go through the doors of their church and encounter this move of God. And that is what Catch the Fire is. It just kind of changed the name over the years to Catch the Fire. But that's, that's our background. And Toronto, really what was happening was a sovereign encounter with the joy of God. And a lot of other things. But it was known globally, even in newspapers, known as the Laughing Revival, which is quite fascinating in itself. Do you know, um, often people refer to it as Toronto Blessing, and that came from a British journalist. Do you know that? And so it was in newspapers being referred to as the Toronto Blessing. The Toronto went through a economic boom due to the tourism generated by people traveling from all over the world to Toronto. There were hotels that were going to go out of business that were sustained for years and became established businesses because of the revival. The revival wasn't just for this church center, but it affected the whole city of Toronto. And people, you'd go there and people would be like, oh, you're the church people. You're the Toronto blessing people. And they'd be known. Did you know in Heathrow Airport... And Gerald Coates actually was interviewed talking about this. Um, and he said that the, in Heathrow Airport, 
the police who were meant to be armed police started not carrying their guns in Heathrow Airport for a season because they were seeing God move in people's lives coming off planes. They were seeing a micro-revival in Heathrow Airport to the point that the police were getting trained on how to deal with people lying on the ground and understanding whether it was a spiritual thing or a physical issue. Isn't that amazing? In Heathrow Airport, there was this dynamic where, and in fact, I was there, um, gosh, just pre-COVID, I think it was, um, picking up John Arnott from the airport. And we were about to do a revival tour around the UK where we were travelling all over. And picking up John, and there were some guys who I knew who were charismatic Catholics who had just got off their aeroplane from a mission they'd just done in Libya, of all places. And they'd landed at the same time, and they were there, and they saw me and John, and they're like, oh my goodness, me, we've got to pray. And it was carnage. It was absolute carnage. Like, there was people falling down under the palace, but one guy was manifesting so hard, it was like his feet were vibrating on the floor with the power of God coming upon him. And people from all over were looking around. And I had the fun job of looking at people like, it's okay, it's just God. (laughs) (laughs) And people look at you like a complete weirdo. But that's our background, that's our heritage, that's who we are as Catch the Fire. And and I want to get us back to, not back to basics, because it's not basic, but back to our roots a little bit today. Is that all right? Because I've been having this kind of phrase go around my head for about three, four weeks now of stop taking yourself so seriously. And I feel like it's not just been for me, but I think it's been for us as as a general sense. And I think sometimes Christianity can get all a little bit too serious. And, and it's easy for us to point fingers as well. It's easy for constructively the charismatic Pentecostal church to look at the more established denominational church and be like, you take it too seriously with your liturgy and all this kind of stuff. And then them look at us and be like, well, you're religiously dogmatic about this. And we all, as Christians, are very good at taking things seriously. And, and I think actually there's an element where I think sometimes we take things more seriously than God does. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we throw the book out of the window and we start just doing whatever the heck we want, because that's not what I'm saying. We have to take certain things very seriously, like atonement and sin and grace and behavior. And all those kind of things are very important, and we should take them very serious. But because something is serious doesn't mean that we then become serious. And what I mean by this is, and Stu said this many times before, boring evangelism... It's surprising that it works. And it does work. I mean, Stu's partly evident of that in his journey to faith. Um, but there's a lot of people around who do what we would call boring evangelism. Where like, and Stu does this best. But you walk up to someone and be like, hello, I'm really sorry, but I'm a Christian. <laughs> and we meet lots of people like me on a Sunday at our church. Do you want to come? No. <laughs> Nobody wants to come to that. I was talking to a new friend of mine the other day who used the phrase of they've been welcome, invited to many churches with the phrase of, we welcome all sinners. <laughs> we don't need to welcome people in their awareness of their sin. We should be so aware of our own sin that actually it's just a case of we welcome all. There's, there's a dynamic in, in our Christendom that we take things a little bit too seriously. And I, I, I'm going to be honest. I... Real talk right now. I've had that dynamic this morning. I literally just grabbed Ashley two minutes ago to pray before I preached because I was like, I'm feeling a little bit serious and grumpy right now. I was like, it's too loud this morning. Hmm. And you know what? Bless the guys, they did a really, really good job. But unfortunately, the hinges are all broken on the plastic bit that goes around the kit. And so 
It is what it is. Now, we've got new ones arriving tomorrow, so you'll be happy next week. You'll be fine. And I'll be happy too. But, hey, the, you know, I was being a bit grumpy. I was like, oh, it's too loud. And it's, you know, we're meant to be following this time schedule. And, and, and I was being grumpy. I was being serious. I was thinking about things that utterly do not matter. It doesn't matter if I get to follow through my notes or not. It matters that we encounter God and his transforming presence. Because that's who we are. Let's talk about the word encounter, because we are people of encounter. As Catch the Fire, that is our fundamental dynamic that we have, is not just that we read this book, and not just that we believe this book, but we look at this book and understand that it is absolutely jam-packed full of stories written by people who encountered God. And they didn't write it down so that we could look at it as a historical document and go, yeah, that's nice. They wrote it down so we could see what it looks like when we too encounter God and his transforming presence. I was, again, sharing with my new friend the other day. We were talking about how when I was at university, I was a slightly more arrogant person. Hopefully a lot more arrogant person. <laughs> and, and we had student-led lectures. And in my lecture, I got to lecture on the charismatic renewal. And one of the questions that was thrown out to me was like, well, isn't it just experience? And so in my arrogantness, and this is slightly sacrilegious, I got out my Bible. And I, book by book, went through it, starting ripping out books of the Bible. And they're like, what are you doing? I was like, well... We can't have that book because that was written from an experience. We can't have that book because that was written from an experience. And, and ultimately, you end up with Leviticus, which, by the way, Leviticus came from an experience, so you kind of like lose that one as well. But ultimately, you end up in a place where the Bible, if we don't have an attitude of experiencing and encountering God, the Bible wouldn't have happened. And so, for me, and this is why I'm so very much not a cessationalist, is because the Bible is a story of people encountering God and being transformed. And as Christians, our journey is to live in an atmosphere of experiencing God's presence and being transformed. But here's the deal. Encounter's not easy. I think sometimes we'd like to view it as easy. But let's look at what the Bible says, first of all, right? In fact, no, not even more than that. Let's look at what the dictionary says before we even get to that bit. It's a verb. And it means unexpectedly... To be faced with or experience something hostile or difficult. Who wants to encounter God? Experience something hostile or difficult. To meet someone unexpectedly. Or as a noun, it is an unexpected meeting with someone or something. A confrontation or an unpleasant struggle. And this is when we were going through the rebranding process as Catch the Fire. One of the things we really wrestled with was this word encounter. Because we couldn't find a single dictionary-based definition of it that wasn't a really scary statement until we realized something, that actually if God, in his holiness and his purity, is to come and encounter us in our brokenness and our sin, then there's going to be a bit of a hostility dynamic going on there. Because he is repulsed by our unholiness, but loves us. And overcomes us. And so in overcoming us and encountering us, he's forcing out all the other stuff. You know, we sung before the bridge of that song, you give and take away. He gives us love and he takes away our sin. He gives us power and he takes away our brokenness. He gives us truth and he takes away the lies. God is in the business of bringing his truth and his power for encounter with us. And it's messy and I think sometimes we've sanitized God. We've, we've, we've sterilized God even to the, to the degree that we've said, okay, God, we're going to have an encounter meeting. 
and we're going to do this, this, and this, and you're going to come in this way, and we're going to do this to make it framework, but it's all on our terms. Like he's some sort of accessory for us to use or follow or even command. And that's a heavy word. But we look at, the way I look at it, and I'm a bit of a foodie, so bear with me with this analogy, but you look like, who's been there in that, that place where you're cooking an amazing meal, right? And you're, and you're about to season it. And you get like, let's say you're cooking like a curry, for example. And you get your curry powder out. And you're like, you know what, today I'm going to be bold. I'm going to go extra hot. And you get the extra hot one out. And you go to sprinkle it and the cap's not screwed on properly. <laughs> and the lid comes off and the world's giantest amount of hot chili powder goes into your curry. What do you do? You go, well, that's ruined and throw it out. Because why is it ruined? Because the flavor of the chili has become far too dominant for the balance of that meal. That curry just had an encounter in the most biblical sense of the word. Because we approach it like this. We're like, God, I want to encounter you with a little bit of seasoning of your presence. I want to be slightly sprinkled with a dusting of who you are so that people can still get me and, my, and who I am and all the things of me and just a little bit of you on top so that when we go to church on a Sunday, we can feel like, oh, yeah, I've been a bit flavoured by God today. I feel good for my Sunday. And then we get to Monday and someone at work says something mean to us and we go, okay, the flavouring's gone. You're ready to receive some of me. Whereas what God wants to do is he wants to unscrew the cap and just dump it all over you. So that you are ruined to this world in your, in your most intended best thoughts of who you are. And entirely dominated by the flavour, the sense, the atmosphere of who God is. He wants to be in that dynamic. You know, we've, there's that amazing video that we've played a few times of That's My King. It comes from a sermon by a guy called Dr. S.M. Lockeridge, who, who basically was invited, and this is awesome, like, word to the wise, right? Never invite an old-school Pentecostal preacher to just do an offering talk, right? It doesn't work. It doesn't happen. This guy's gone down in infamy in time because he was invited at a conference in America to get up and give the offering talk, and then he stood there for, like, a solid 20 minutes with this complete, spontaneous sermon called That's My King, and it's awesome, and you get some really cool, really well-done media video versions of it on YouTube, so I encourage you to look it up. But there's a statement in that where he says, you can't get him off of your hands. You can't get him off of who you are. You can't live without him. And, and, it's, and it's all this kind of atmosphere stuff. And, but the reality is you can't get him off you. Once you have encountered God and his transforming presence, don't even try to be the same anymore. Because, you know, he wants to kill you. He's invested into your destruction. Isn't that madness? But because what he can do in your death and in his promises of your resurrection is far greater than you can do on your own in your fleshy sense. And so he wants to destroy the broken humanity in you and release you into a spirit-filled, God-flavoured, undescribably full of him dynamic where wherever you go, you're not just flavoured by him, but you're walking past people and they're getting covered in God as well. You know, we, we have too much history, rich history of revival throughout this world that we shouldn't just look at it and go, that was nice. But we should understand something, that they lived in a dynamic where they said, God, destroy me and fill me up with you. Break me down and build me up again. Now, we're not interested in a theology that says, break me down and leave me broken. God doesn't need broken people. But he wants to break you and build you back up again. There's this amazing... 
um, pottery called Kajabi from Japan where they, they take a cheap piece of pottery that's been broken and they put it back together again using 24 karat gold to make this unique piece of artwork which is still fulfilling the function it had before but it's interlaced with gold interlaced and it'll never go back to being the same again but it's now become priceless it's gone from being this this broken bit of cheap pottery to suddenly this beautiful incredible piece of art that has evidence of its former condition but is no longer the same anymore and it's interlaced with gold you are like that in this earthly sense when we get to heaven we're going to no longer be recognizable as our former selves but in our broken condition God has picked us up put us back together interlaced us with his glory so that when we're looked at people look at us and no longer see a cheap broken vessel but see something that's been turned into artistry and beauty and no matter what angle you look at it you can see the evidence of the gold and the glory of heaven and that's who we are and so what I mean by taking things less seriously is let's get over the intensity of religion and get into the joy of the fact that no matter which way you look at me, you should see the glory of God. And in that, we can't take ourselves seriously anymore because the moment we start to take ourselves too seriously, it becomes about us again. But we've got to understand that he is glorious and he beautifies the meek. He pours out his love upon us. We have sanitized God. The other phrase God gave me as I was preparing this week is we've domesticated him. And, and let's talk about fire for a second. Fires are really useful things in the Bible. There's a lot of encounters involving the fire of God. And, and I was watching Jungle Book with Isla the other day. It was really fun. Uh, but there's that bit where King Louis is like, you've got to give me man's red fire. You've got to help me harness the, the, the power of fire. And what we've done in, in a very natural sense is over history, from the discovery of the power of fire to now, is we've domesticated fire. We've We've controlled it. We've, we've harnessed it. We use it to move vehicles. We move it to, we use it to heat our homes. And, you know, people who've got open fireplaces in their home, they understand the risk dynamic of it. But the whole point of technology moving forward downgrades the risk to having a fire in your home and upgrades the benefits, right? And so you get like a wood-burning stove, and that is a really low-risk fire to have in your home, but a very highly efficient way of heating it. And we have, as society, we've gotten very good at domesticating fire, Chris over there puts wood-burning stones in people's stoves, stones, stoves, in their homes. So if you want to, you know, get a wood-burning stove, talk to him later. <laughs> but we have, we've domesticated fire. If you look at civilizations in the past gone by, like if you look at ancient Rome, the, only, the Romans, the way they would use fire to heat was they'd use these cast-iron braziers, which are basically like a basket they'd fill with fire, which is very efficient, but very dangerous. And if you lived in upper-class Rome in your, mo in your marble villas and your stone atmospheres, it wasn't very dangerous because if a coal or wood fell out of the brazier onto the floor, it wasn't going to ignite anything. It was safe. If you lived in the lower-working-class districts and the slums in Rome where there were like these three-story agoras or villas or townhouses that were built out of wood, did you, like, it was dangerous. And actually, houses burning down, people dying from fire was such a regular occurrence in ancient Rome that it wasn't even a concern. It was a matter of survival. They housed the fire in their homes, understanding that to be warm for a moment with the risk of burning down the next day was, was more benefit than the risk involved. And, and we, in our society, we domesticated fire to the point that almost like we don't have the same risk factors anymore. We don't have the same respect for it. And so... We have this filter when we come to God's fire. Of God's fire is something that we can house. God's fire is something we can turn up and turn down. 
We can heat the pot when we want to and we can cool it down when we don't want to. And we, we have this attitude with God's fire of like, we're in control. We've domesticated it. We've made it for the appropriate moment where we're going to have our fireplace and we're going to say, God, okay, now you can light the fire and you can come and do your thing. And if it's getting too hot, we're going to turn it down a bit. I want us to have the attitude like Smith Wigglesworth had. His pastor's meetings, this is extraordinary. He would do pastor's prayer meetings where he'd start off and he'd say something like, Holy Spirit, come and welcome the fire of God and then just sit there. And over the course of 10 minutes to 15 minutes, 20 minutes, slowly, one by one, pastors would drop to their knees and then drop to their faces on the floor and then crawl out commando style for fear of dying because the presence of God and the fire of God was so intense. And you'd hear it time and time again of these accounts of ultimately Smith Wigglesworth would be sat on his own in the middle of this room with this presence and this fire so intense that people thought they were going to die. That's the fire of God. That's an encounter with God. And we talk about these nice stories of like, well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they walked through the fire and they did not get burnt when everyone else got burnt. They walked through the fire with one who looked like the son of man and they did not get burnt. But the very guards who put them in the furnace were burnt alive just from the sheer heat being exuded from that. Let's think about that for a second. When we walk with Jesus... It says in the Bible that if you love me and obey me, we will come and make our home in you. We, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. When you love and obey God such that you are walking with him daily, when his fire comes, it is not a dangerous thing for you, but it's a very dangerous thing for the atmosphere around you. The things that are ungodly will start to be burnt up. The things in your life that are ungodly will start to be burnt up because God is wanting to encounter you. He's interested in doing a hostile takeover in your life. What does that look like? An encounter with God. It changes you. It shifts something in you. If you say, oh, I've encountered God today and you don't look different, I'm sorry, but you haven't encountered God. When stuff happens in our life of a hostile nature, something happens to us. You know, we're just living our lives, walking along, going along the street. Nothing's going on in life and then, bam! (laughs) Now, Natasha, what's going on for you right now? Your heart's racing. The adrenaline's pumping. You're surprised. That was hostile, wasn't it? Natasha just encountered me. She just had an encounter with my presence. And she's different as a result. She is not calm right now. Her heart is racing. She's got adrenaline going on. She feels a little bit exposed, a little bit vulnerable, a little bit cornered out, a little bit unsure if that was fair or not. When you encounter something, it changes you. If you've ever experienced prejudice or hostility in your life, you understand what it looks like to encounter something. I can tell you something. I've had some times in my life where there's been irrational prejudice towards me. I was talking to Mir back about this the other day. You know, one of the last times we had a service at the Ark Academy in Wembley, there was a football match going on. And as I was walking out to my car, a car pulled up, stopped, threw a bottle of something at me, yelled, effing ginger something, 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 and then drove off. Entire irrational prejudice due to the colour of my hair. And, and, and sadly, I'll tell you, that's not the first time that's happened in my life, nor potentially would it be the last, because people have an irrational prejudice towards things that are not like them. I had an encounter. It changed me. I had a dynamic going on. I was, I was ready to go. I was like, man, if that car was, if I was in a car right now, I'd be right after them. I'm going to be honest. Like, I had a time when me and Ashley were, we were away for our um, wedding anniversary at a hotel, and a drunk guy coming out of his work Christmas party, because we had a Christmas wedding, it was amazing, um, corners me and gets right up in my face, and is like, why would you be with him with him having ginger hair? Isn't that stupid, ridiculous? 
I had to be so aware of my healedness <laughs> and my salvation in that moment and dial down the desire to give him a bit of fivefold ministry in that moment. <laughs> but I had an encounter. It wasn't a good thing. It wasn't enjoyable. It wasn't nice. It, wasn't, it made me respond. It transformed and changed who I was. It put me on the guard. When, and and we, when we look at these negative aspects of encounter, we understand something about the way God encounters us. We can't plan it. We can't preempt it. We can't house it. We can't control it. We can't restrict it. Nor can we help but be changed by it. When God showed up and knocked Saul off his horse, was Saul in a position of saying, I'm ready to encounter you, God. I've just done five hours of soaking and I've been ready for your presence. No, he was persecuting the Christians. He was on his horse on his way to go kill people. And God knocked him off his horse. When Elijah built the altar in front of the prophets of Baal and goaded them, and da, 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 do you think he expected God to turn up the way he did? He knew God was going to come. And I think it's important that in our lives we make space for God to move. But I don't think when he was filling the trench with water and when he was dousing the altar in water, did he expect the extravagance of fire to come that meant that afterwards the ground, the stone was dry and nothing of the burnt offering remained. He had an idea of who God was, but God showed up in an incredible, powerful, mighty way. And Acts, when they were gathered in that upper room, praying and seeking God's presence, do you think that they were expecting to have tongues of fire appear on their heads and the sound of rushing wind fill the room and draw a whole city to that place and to go out and start speaking in other languages and be accused of being drunk and be accused of da -da -da -da, all this kind of stuff? No, they were just seeking God. Some of them weren't even seeking God. They were terrified and hiding with their mates from the persecution that was going on around them and the confusion that was happening in their world. But God came and encountered them. And they were different as a result. It says there were 5,000 added to their number that day. Isn't that extraordinary? And I think often we think about the 5,000 and we think about those praying in the upper room. But can you imagine if you were in that room and you looked to your mate and suddenly there's a tongue of fire above the head? I don't know about you, you freak out. If we all sat here right now and suddenly pff, Stu looks like he's spontaneously combusting, we'd freak out. Not many of us would go, ooh, try and touch it. Some of us will probably run and get a bucket of water. When God shows up, it's unexpected, it's powerful, it's transformational, it changes us, it shifts things. We can't preempt it, but we can get ourselves in a position to be ready for it. And I think in the same way that Elijah built that altar to God with such an expectation of God coming, we need to live our lives, building our lives as an altar with such an expectation of God coming. Because yes, we walk with him every step of the day in every way of who we are, but then we need to make places in our lives where we consecrate ourselves. And this is what I mean about not not taking ourselves too seriously is we need to take seriously the things God asks us to do but then when he shows up we need to be ready for him just to explode and do his thing and get ourselves out of the way we don't laugh enough as a church and our heritage is being called a laughing revival I'm not saying we're all going to just start laughing spontaneously right now but if God showed up and made us laugh wouldn't that be extraordinary I know people who in fact I used to live with a guy called Kev and Kev, was, he, his background was as bad as you can probably imagine. He was, um, his dad was a drug addict. His mom had special needs of drug addict. He left school at 15, completely un, like, unqualified, uneducated, being dad and mom to his younger brother. 
Um, he had special needs. He had learning difficulties. He had just brokenness. And he was very much into music like Black Sabbath. So he had long, like, dark black hair and was just an oppressed being. Life had taught him that it was hard, that it was broken, that it was oppressive, and that hope wasn't something he was allowed to have. You know, even just little silly things like he'd never had a Christmas tree. And the Kev I met was not that guy. Because Kev, somehow, I don't really understand how this ever happened, but somehow Kev ended up in Toronto. And Kev spent his school of ministry for three months just laughing and laughing and laughing and laughing and laughing and laughing and laughing. If you've ever heard the recording of a kookaburra, that is how Kev laughed. It is a brash, loud, unexcused, completely abandoned, unabashed, ridiculous, infectious laughter. And he, whenever God came, would just laughter. To the point he'd be in stitches on the floor in pain because he was laughing so much. And some people judged him. But tell you what, I lived with him for a year. Matt Seifel, the three of us. It was a very anointed house. We all went in single and all left married. It was amazing. Um, (laughs) Come on. And not to each other. (laughs) To wonderful, godly women. Um, And Kev was the real deal. It wasn't just a show. Like a church, you literally only needed to utter the word holy and he'd be on the floor in pieces just laughing. And he wasn't short of hardship even in his salvation life he wasn't short of difficulty in his life he still had the same parents still had the same brother still had the same upbringing and background and yet what God did in Toronto I remember asking him, I was like Kev what does the laughter mean to you he was like well I didn't laugh from the age of probably two to like 21 laughter was just not a language or dynamic in my life and the moment I stepped into that atmosphere the first time I laughed I felt something leave me and something come into me and I was like that's amazing And he's like, and I'm going to keep laughing and keep laughing, not until I've just resolved the lack of laughter in my life, but so that others around me can receive the anointing and the freedom that I've had in my own life. He was like, I am unqualified. I am without authority. I'm uneducated. I don't know the language to say it, but what I do know is that the Holy Spirit is in me and he's on me and he's going to change other people because he's changed me. And I can tell you, I'd wake up at three in the morning and hear Kev laughing. He'd have a hard day at work. He'd get home, lie on the sofa. First thing he did, lie on the sofa, put on some worship and just say, God, come. And we'd just laugh. And laugh and laugh and laugh. He had favour. He was a teaching assistant. And he was, like, literally, teaching assistants, I don't know if you know, but often they're not paid in school holidays and all that kind of stuff. He got offered a contract within two weeks of working in the school he was working in to be on full-time pay in school holidays as well because they recognised something about him. He was unqualified. We're unqualified. What possibly could we do to qualify ourselves to be carriers of the glory of God? What possible thing could we do to qualify ourselves to receive salvation, forgiveness, justification of faith, atonement? What possible things could we do to achieve those things? Nothing. That's the point of the cross. That's the point of why Jesus, the perfect one, the lamb who was slain before time, had to come and take all of our sins, all of our things upon him. So not only could we be forgiven, not only could we be healed and set free, but also we could be qualified for all eternity to be glory carriers of his kingdom and his power. We have to encounter him. Because if we don't, what have we got? What can we carry? What can we bring? 
I've got one last little story and example for you guys, and then we're going to pray. When I was preparing for this, God reminded me of something he's been teaching me with my parenthood of Isla recently. Because sometimes the very thing that stops us wanting to enter into God's presence and encounter him is our need to control and protect ourselves. And Isla, in her journey... Hello, Caleb. Hello, buddy. Let's see, should we see if... Babu can open them for you. Go on, go to Babu. She's reached a journey in her life as, as a toddler where emotions are very real. And the challenges of those emotions are very real. And she is particularly emotive and creative as a person as well. So it's probably even more elevated in her. And there is times... Ooh, the presence of God. <laughs> there is times where... It's all right, keep it going, it's good, I like it. I don't know where it came from, but it's good. Um, There's times where she will get herself to such an emotional, worked-up place that it is just like, almost like parts of her brain shut down, which is very normal for that age, but shut down and she becomes just almost animalistic in some ways. That she'll just, like it happened last week in Fire Kids, she just, something wound her up to the point that she was lying under the chairs and all would happen would, if anyone got close, she'd kind of just like bark at them. She'd like, ah! Get away in like complete emotional overload, sensory overload, unable to deal with it. And the father showed me about two months ago. He said, Dan, I want to do something really hard. He's like, when she gets like that, I want you just to pick her up and hold her. She'll hate it. She won't like it, but I want you to do it. And it's true. I'll pick her up. She won't want it. She'll be all elbows, fists, teeth, claws, everything. I'll pick her up and I'll hold her. And, and she'll hit me. She'll scream at me. She'll shout at me. And I'll hold her. And she'll kick and she'll scream. And then suddenly this amazing thing happens where suddenly the atmosphere of her frustration will become less powerful than the atmosphere of my love. And a release happens where suddenly the, the bottled up, the restricted, the pain, the hurt, all that's going on suddenly releases and tears come. And, and she'll weep. She'll even sometimes she'll laugh. And she'll do this kind of crying, laughing thing in my arms. And I, was, I, asked her, I actually asked her permission to share this in the cars at Isla and talked it through with her. I was like, you know how sometimes when you're really, really grumpy and really, really sad and you have a hug and it gets worse and then you, and then you cry and then you, get, and then you get better. I was like, why is that? And she says, well, it's because I feel safe, Daddy. And there is a dynamic where when we encounter God, we might not like it. We might not be ready for it. We might not want it. We might all be elbows and claws and teeth and frustration and anger. And when God comes up, comes and encounters us, sometimes we almost, we'll even get to a point where we're like, no, this can't be God. Because we're filtering it all for our frustration and he just wraps his big arms around us. And he loves us and loves us until the release comes. And some of us we might cry. Some of us we might scream. Some of us we might just be. Some of us we might find joy. But the way you encounter God doesn't really matter because that's who God is in that moment. The fact that you encounter him is the thing that matters. One last story and then we're going to pray. So I don't know if... Wayne and the guys could be ready. We're going to pray where we are and we're just going to let him come. But I'll never forget, Mike Pilavachi used to lead Soul Survivor Festivals, which no longer happen anymore, but you'd get like 11,000, 12,000 young people in a tent worshipping God together. 
And then you'd inevitably get to a place in the meeting where Mike would just stand, get the mic, and just say, come Holy Spirit. And you'd just feel these extraordinary waves of God's presence just going across the tent in different places. And, it's, and he'd just be like, okay, that right there over there, that's just a release and a call to the nations. And you just hear these voices just start to cry out in response to the reality of what Holy Spirit's releasing over there. And then he'd be like, there'd be a wave over here and people just start to weep and cry. And he's like, yeah, God's just, God's just healing some brokenness over there. Don't worry. And, and the ministry, it was beautiful. The ministry team would just walk around and just aid Holy Spirit in doing what he was doing. They'd never sanitize it. They'd never domesticate it. They'd never restrict it or shut it down. They would just make it safe so that others could still stand and engage with God and it was amazing you just see these waves of him going and I just want us this morning to do that and so for whatever it looks like for you right now whether it's going to be sitting standing coming to the front whatever it is we're going to let God move we're going to let him come in Psalm 23 it says goodness and mercy will hunt you down all the days of your life and so if you're ready to be hunted down and no kids has finished and, and stuff, and so we're just gonna, the kids can just do their thing. In Azusa Street Revival, the kids just played in the glory cloud. That's what they did. And so whatever it looks like to you, just close your eyes, stand up, sit down, do a headstand, whatever it is, it's between you and God right now. The space is here at the front. And we just say, God, why don't you just pray this with me, actually? God, I lay down my controls. I lay down my restrictions. And I welcome you to come and encounter me. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. And whatever you feel, just feel it. Just be, don't worry about the person next to you, in front of you, behind you. Be concerned about him. Just let him come. <laughs>